If you hang out in a homeless shelter, if you hang out in a prison, you're going to be tested. Yeah. Your faith is going to be tested, and you're going to you're going to understand. It's easy to categorize these people, to dismiss them, to think of them as kind of a sociological group. When you get to know them as human beings, then you can feel the compassion that eventually attracted people to Jesus in his day and should attract people to us. What a reminder from my guest today, Philip Yancey, looking into the soul of every human being, seeing their humanity and the imago Dei, meaning the image of God in them. Welcome to Refocus with Jim Daly, a podcast production from Focus on the Family. I had a fascinating conversation with Philip, a best-selling author who's spent years investigating how we can be salt and light as followers of Christ, and we need that in the culture right now. He'll share how you can be a witness for Christ in a winsome way and avoid unintentionally and unnecessarily offending others. I remember a time with somebody here in Colorado Springs, a liberal man who had no faith, and he called me up and really liked our adoption efforts for foster care and wanted to have coffee with me. So I met with him and you know, he said, you know, Jim, I just didn't expect something that good to come out of focus on the family. And I said to him, I don't really think you know much about who we are and what we do. And he said, you know, it's fair. I don't. Why don't you tell me? And so we went through, you know, a little description of the things we concentrate on with marriage and parenting and evangelism and advocating for children and then speaking or engaging in the public square. And once I shared it with him, he said, those are all reasonable things. I'm not a man of faith, but I respect that you do those things. Uh, Philip has some great examples of how we can balance truth and love when we engage pre-Christians. That's a good way to look at these folks. Uh, people who haven't yet discovered a relationship with God. And the great news is God's probably going to use you as a tool to help them discover him. In fact, he even has a story about praying for terrorists. That kind of falls or feels like it falls beyond the pale, but uh, it's amazing. God died for them too. It's hard to believe, but it's like uh, the thief on the cross. So stick with us. You won't want to miss it. And uh, with that, let's get into the discussion I had with Philip Yancey on Refocus with Jim Daly. The book of John in the New Testament introduces Jesus as the Word who became flesh, uh, full of grace and truth. That's right out of John 1. And it's not easy, but as followers of Christ, we're called to engage others in love and truth. And it is the eternal battle, I think, for all of us as Christians. And I know I've missed the mark before. I strive to do it well. Um, I'm pleased when I do that well, but again, it's just very difficult depending upon those circumstances. And Philip, it is great to have you with us. Thank you. My pleasure. And I'm so glad you started with that quote from John, because uh, I look at Jesus kind of holding out two hands, grace and truth. And I look at church history, and we've worked really hard on that truth part. We did. Uh, <laughs> l- last I heard, there were like 45,000 denominations in the world, and everyone thinks they've got a little little more corner of the truth than the other 49,999. Yeah. <laughs> and I I just wish we had denominations who would be striving to be more grace-filled than anybody else. Well, let me, let's start there. I mean, yeah. that difference, we all talk about it. We all struggle with it. I knew a Christian leader who once told me, you know, I understand God's grace, but sometimes when it comes to those that don't believe the way I believe, I'm afraid I'm going to become their friend and capitulate hmm. on the principles. I think that's a well-stated 
concern or well-stated fear that some people, depending upon your personality type, you might pull back because you think, man, if, if I like them, I might give in. Hmm. I haven't thought of that before. That's, uh, I suppose that's a danger. And I think probably the way to avoid that is just to be plugged into a community of shared values so that you get recharged whenever you're around them, whether it's a small group or a, a church service. And we have this model in the early church. We keep going back there because it worked so well. Actually, there weren't many missionaries in the early church. There weren't many evangelists. They kept to themselves, but they would come together. They would worship God. They would encourage each other, and then they would go out. And they were different than other people in the Roman Empire. And ultimately, as people looked at the way they lived, they said, I, I kind of would rather be one of those people than me. <laughs> I want what they've got. And and I think that's how the church works best. If we, if we put out a sign of contradiction with the rest of culture around us, our culture is very celebrity-oriented. It's very success-oriented, achievement-oriented. And Christians say, well, we're also supposed to care about other people, people who aren't very successful, achievement-oriented. We're here to serve. I think about the, the, toward the end of John, when Jesus had his last night with the disciples. And it's a beautiful passage, John 13 to 17, where it was his last shot, basically. He's giving them the final instructions, and then he's going to leave. He's going to ascend, first die, and then resurrect, and then ascend. But this is his last time to give what's most important. And I, I go back, and of course, he starts by washing their feet. You're here to serve others, not to be served. And then he says, the mark of a, a follower of me is love. And that's what people ought to think. Oh, that person loves a lot. Must be a Christian. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Must I, be a Jesus follower. And then unity. He yeah. said, boy, I wish, I wish you in the church to follow would have the same kind of unity that we enjoy in the Trinity. Yeah. And we'll, we'll unpack that over the next few minutes. And I, you know, several things, the early church, the idea of love. L let's start with the recent Barna study that found nearly half of non-Christians have negative feelings toward evangelicals. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's something right there. Although I do understand that, um, you know, the, the word will become a stumbling block right. is one reference. Um, you know, Jesus reference bringing division because of, uh, you know, the distinction between the world and his followers. So that's going to be there. But why is, you know, the concern around half of the non-believers feeling like Christians, uh, they have negative feelings mm. toward Christians? Why, why do you think that exists? Well, what struck me about that Barnes survey is that just maybe 20 years before, 85% of non-Christians had a positive view of Christians. So maybe they really didn't believe in it and they weren't that interested in being religious themselves. But if a Christian was a neighbor, well, that's a good thing. Um, you know, they'll be a good role model for your kids, and maybe they'll cut the grass if, you're, if you've got a broken ankle or something. You know? Yeah, that's it's, true. It's a good thing. And now more than half say, I don't want to live next door to one of those Christians. And Barna tried to investigate that and find out what had happened in that 20-year period. And a lot of it had to do with divisive politics mm -hmm. where— Christians became more identified, certainly in the media, through a political lens. If you read the New York Times or Time magazine and tried to figure out what is an evangelical, 
you would think, oh, it's a radical conservative Republican. <laughs> you know? Right. That's what the that's what the media portrays, and in in some ways we are conservative, in some ways we're not. It depends on the issue. Right. You know, our our issues are are going to be a little different always from the surrounding culture because yeah. we take them from the Bible and the rest of culture doesn't always. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting and overly simplistic, but I used to do the international division here at Focus, so I was able to travel to mm. about 70 countries. And you could see how countries take on, you know, the character of the culture, et cetera. You see it expressed. Um, the independence, for example, the United States. We have a very independent streak. You know, my way or the highway. Don't tread on me. Don't tread on <laughs> me. I mean, and those are things that are passed down generationally and that we do take forward. And then you have European countries that are, uh, you know, more about the utilitarian aspect of community and those kinds of things. But in that regard, when it comes to uh, the politics of things, you know, I, I remember sitting, I think, in Australia, and I was thinking, looking back, I think we had just had an election in the U.S., and I thought to myself, you know, it's funny. It's like Republicans are the dad and Democrats are the mom. Right, right. <laughs> you yeah. know, the, they tend to want to help everybody on the Democratic side, and the Republicans are like, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and you know, that kind of thing. That's right. And in that context, you know, one of the difficult questions in that regard is, you know, one party does line up with a lot of the things that many Christians believe, like the right to life mm -hmm. and uh, the support of the police and all kinds of things like that. And, you know, again, taking care of the poor tends to lean in a democratic direction. Mm -hmm. So if you can, I mean, it hit that one because it's so true. It's it's complex. Um, right. Well, I, I think of a story I heard from the director of the Evangelical Alliance in the UK, much like our National Association of Evangelicals. Mm -hmm. And when John Major was the prime minister, this would have been maybe right. 30 years ago or so, right. he called him in and said, um, I hear about all these evangelicals and I'm interested in them. You know, I, I want to appeal to their votes. But uh, I can't figure them out. Can you tell me? Are they are they conservative or are they liberal? <laughs> and so the head of the Evangelical Alliance said, "Well, let's see. Let's go down the list here. Um, they care about the poor, so some people would say that's liberal. But they're they're strongly pro-life and against in infanticide and euthanasia. Some people would say that's conservative. They're against racism. Pe some people would say that's liberal." They support the rights of women. Some people would say that's liberal, but they believe uh, only in in sex and within a marriage. Many would say that's conservative. And he went down the list and he said, <laughs> "You tell me." Right. And Major said, "Well, I guess they're neither one. Well, they're a little bit of both. It right. depends on the issue. But the problem is, if we identify any time the church has identified with one particular." party or one particular group, it often gets co-opted by the group. And whenever the church and state are in bed together, the state always wins. <laughs> you know, I, I look mm. at, uh, we've been going through this major crisis in Europe because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And Putin, one of his main rises, one of the main reasons for his rise to power was because he embraced, kind of co-opted, the Russian Orthodox Church. And at first, the evangelicals who lived in Russia thought, oh, well, that's great. We've got a religious president here. Well, as soon as they got together, the church and state, they kicked out all the evangelical missionaries. They just, even the Salvation Army, people like that. Right. 
you have to be orthodox to, to be licensed in Russia. And that's what happens again and again. If you get too close to one political party or if you get too enamored by the power, you know, no matter what it is, eventually it comes back to bite you because right. the state controls that power and it will ultimately win. And I think there is a fine art, if I could describe it that way, to embracing those things that are biblical, like yeah. I would say the, the pro-life effort, and then keeping your eyes and ears open to things like helping the poor. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, people will say, well, that's not government's role. It's the church's role. But in soberness, you have to say that, you know, the government has more wherewithal to put sure. money and resources toward sure. that effort than the Christian church does, although the Christian church has a great history of taking care of the poor. And if you look at all the people who are staffing the homeless shelters and uh, feeding those who don't have a place to live and visiting the prisoners, a good portion of them are Christians, yeah. just simply out of the limelight doing that basic work that Jesus called us to do, to care for the least of these. And again, that's the balance of truth and grace, which is what we're talking about. How yeah. do we do both well? Uh, you mentioned two types of, of Christians, uh, pre-Christian and post-Christian. What, what do you mean by those two descriptions? Sometimes, I've done this so often, I'll be sitting on an airplane or in a lobby somewhere, and uh, I'll start talking, and People will say, what do you do? Well, I'm a writer. What do you write about? And I explain some of my books. Oh, <laughs> oh, one of those religious writers. Well, most of the time, I, yeah, these are matters of faith that I care about. Well, I used to be a Christian. And then they'll tell me some story about uh, being wounded by the church, the way it treated somebody, or uh, maybe they didn't like its stance on science, or or uh, a divorced person was treated, or a gay person was treated. And, you know, they just tell me some sad story. And they expect me to defend the church, and instead I, I kind of laugh and say, oh, it's, it's worse than that. Let me tell you my story. Yeah, right. okay. <laughs> and I, I've just written this memoir, Where the Light Fell, that describes the toxic church I grew up in. It was in the South. It was on the wrong side of the civil rights movement and, and a lot of things. And, and yet I'll say to them, uh, do, do you really think it's a good trade to trade away the possibility of connecting with the Lord of the universe because of the way some old lady treated your friend 30 years ago. That know? is a great question. It's the same one I ask. Like, is are it, you really going to give up yeah. your salvation? And that's kind of a post-Christian. Yeah. Because they've, been, they've got a wound there. And then you meet other people who really have no exposure, and they're kind of fascinated. You know, they, they know that people care about religion, and they see things on television, and they just, they've really never met somebody that'll sit down and talk to them about what they believe. Yeah. And you have a, usually you need a different approach there just to explain so much that's good in our society comes directly out of the church, human rights and, and care for the environment and education and medical care. You know, these all have Christian roots yeah. very deeply. Very true. I, I remember encountering a woman in the abortion industry and, and uh, we had a, a great discussion and I remember when she first came into my office, she was shaking. And mm. I said, are you okay? And she said, well, my friend said you were going to put a voodoo <laughs> hex on me. And I, I laughed, saying, what, what do you know about Christianity? And she said, really nothing. I just think you want to try to kill us. Mm. I said, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, the, can, Do you mind if I could share with you what it is we believe? And she said, and this really haunted me, she said, I would appreciate that because no one's ever taken the time to tell me. Wow. Isn't that amazing? We it make the amazing. assumption that if you're on the other side of something we believe, then right. you've 
you've calculated and made the decision that you are against God in that thing, whether it's life right. or something like that. And sometimes they've never even heard yeah. the alternative. Well, and I'm sure you know that story, Jim, about uh, the original Jane Roe, <laughs> yeah. Roe versus Wade, yeah. where at first the head of Operation Rescue would would follow her around and yell baby killer and things like that. And then they got a new head and he ended up being in the same complex where she worked with Planned Parenthood. Huh. And she would go out for a cigarette break and he started sitting with her during her break mm. and changed her completely and she eventually renounced her former position and became a Christian. You mention in the book this idea that non-believers are lost or people who are thirsty potentially that God's love is for every person. Mm. I, I totally ascribe to that because I think it's so true and so accurate. I don't think God's against anybody. He wants everyone to know him. Uh, how do you <laughs> how do you remember that when you're in the heat of a spiritual battle with your neighbor <laughs> or something like that? Chuck Colson told me once, and I don't think he coined it, but he used it often, and that is you don't get mad at a blind man who steps on your foot. Huh. And he parlayed that into spiritually, don't get mad at people that don't understand the way of God. That's very good. And I, I think it's true. It's been a guiding principle for me. Right. I got that phrase, thirsty, from Henry Nouwen. I'm sure you know that name. Right. Henry uh, was a priest, uh, spoke a lot of times to evangelical audiences, spent the last part of his life not at Harvard and Yale where he had earlier taught, but working with the severely mentally challenged people in La Arche in Toronto. Back when the AIDS epidemic first started, so this would have been when Ronald Reagan was president, really, he heard about this disease and he heard that there were a lot of gay men. It was actually called the gay men syndrome by uh -huh. the CDC back then because almost everybody that was reporting this strange disease were part of the homosexual male community. Right. So he heard there was, a, there was a clinic going on in San Francisco, and he flew out there, and he said it was, uh, it was just so sad, an open ward, and all of these guys were going to die soon because there was no treatment at all in, in those days. And he said, I just went up and down the rows of men, and, he said, and I said, I'm a priest, so I like to listen to people's stories. That's what we do. Can you tell me your story? And he said some of them would almost spit at him and say, I don't want any of this stuff this religious stuff, but others would tell their stories. And he said, again and again, I heard people who were thirsting for love. And I would say, did you find it? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. did, it did it satisfy you? And he went on and, and talked about the, uh, the woman at the well. You know, Jesus, I see that you're thirsting. Has the water satisfied you? Mm -hmm. No, it hasn't. Um, would you like to know a living water that does satisfy you? And he said, when I returned from that, my prayers changed when I was around people that offended me in some way. I used to pray, Lord, help them to see the light or help me to be kind to these morally offensive persons. He said, now I pray for thirsty people. I said, God, help me to see those that even offend me as thirsty people. If I could see them as thirsty people and realize my job is to point them to the living water that indeed satisfies, that really turned a corner in how he prayed and how he saw people that he disagreed with profoundly. Yeah. You know, um, that reminds me of a theologian that I know who's still living, who said to me on the phone one time, quite appropriately, I think, we were talking about some difficulties in the culture, and he was referring to some Christians that were 
edgy, very uh, upset about some things, probably in the political arena. And he said, man, you don't have to go out of your way to be hated. Hmm. And I, that's another great statement that, you know, the offense of the gospel should be the offense, not you and your personality. Yeah, yeah. And I, that's another guiding principle, you know, that yeah. if you're the one preventing someone from coming to know the Lord, you're in some deep weeds there spiritually, in my opinion. Yeah. If it's your personality, your aggression, your behavior towards someone who doesn't know the Lord, if that's what's preventing it. You don't wear that as a badge because I don't think the Lord will be happy with that in the end. Speak the truth, mm. but do so in love. Relate to that. I mean, the clanging symbol and all the great scriptures yeah. we have that if you don't have love, you really don't have anything. That's right. That's right. We tend to ignore those. We do. And that reminds me of uh, a great phrase from Martin Luther King Jr., who, of course, was a very religious man. He was a clergyman. And he, he said, we have to fight for some issues. They're, they're worth fighting. But we use different weapons. We use the weapons of grace, he said. Yeah. And that's one of the problems when Christians get so in, enamored and involved with politics. It's an adversary sport. You call each other names. I won't mention any names, but a couple of elections ago, one candidate was calling half of the country despicables. Another candidate was calling his enemies uh, human scum and deranged. Well, as soon as you, I mean, that's the world of politics. That's what they do. Uh, right. You fight. <laughs> but one would say the reason they go there is because today, at least, it tends to work. And that's sinister. Yeah. But, but you know, it's like anything. If it gets you the vote, you go to the gutter. It works in the game of politics. But, but if Christians start playing that game, absolutely, then they're not going to they're going to have an offensive odor about them. Well, they're using the wrong weapons. Yeah. I remember uh, in that way, I remember I was uh, actually having lunch with David Horowitz talking about what was going on in campuses, et cetera. And he said to me, don't you know you're in an alley? And they've got switchblades. Hmm. And you're in that alley fight. And I said, David, we know that, but our weapons have to be love, grace, truth. Yeah. You know, and he went, wow, those are not very good weapons. I'll never <laughs> forget that. But that is the worldly side looks at that as a weakness. But how, how do we stand firm and be confident that the weapons of the spiritual warfare that the Lord gave us, love, joy, peace, goodness, the fruit of the Spirit, they actually do prevail over time? They do. And again, Martin Luther King Jr. is a good example because uh, he would say, I, have to, I am required to love even the cop who's beating me with a nightstick as he drags me to jail. Think of that. I know. And he lived it out. Yeah. You never heard him uh, diss the cops. I mean, he he was he was a victim in some ways, but he he wouldn't become their victim. He would he would say, "Laws can only do so much. I can lobby for laws that keep white people from from lynching black people, but I can't pass a law making them love black people. That's a different battle. That's a battle of the heart." And you don't win those battles by passing laws or by yelling. You win them by, by love and showing the world a different way. And he did that, and it cost him his life. But he changed our society in dramatic ways. And I, I would say if the person listening or watching right now, if, they're, if you're arguing to say, you know what, I hear that, but you know, I, just, I have a hard time agreeing with that because we need to win, um, just take some time and read the Scripture. Hmm. I mean, I, I don't believe it's about winning in the short term about going to the gutter in order to get a victory because right. then you're just fighting like the world right. would fight and i don't know well i do know that that's not the way the lord would have us behave etc 
And, and Jim, part of it is, is what we are about as a church. If you go look at just Paul's letters, to the, these are some of the original churches out there, and you have to look pretty closely to find anything about, let's clean up the Roman Empire. That, that right. really wasn't Paul's agenda. You know? At times he doesn't even address Herod or others. No. I mean, he just leaves it. Yeah, I remember uh, in one election where the choice was between uh, two two characters I didn't like much. And then um, <laughs> I realized in Paul's day, if there were elections, the choice would have been between Nero and Caligula. Choose your, right, there you go. Choose There's your a couple poison, of options. You know? and, and Paul didn't seem, uh, he didn't seem concerned. There were terrible things going on in the Roman Empire, but he didn't spend much time on them. He primarily spent his energy on trying to create a different kind of community, a community of worship and love and uh, and shared values that would show the world, you don't have to live this way. There can be another way to live. And you're going to make choices I disagree with, and I'm sorry about that, but we're not going to do that. We're going to be different. We're going to yeah. be a sign of contradiction. And again, I think even having this discussion, the idea is to grow in it, right? To understand where we might have a blind eye. And I think mm -hmm. that's great. You found four common complaints about Christians in an article, I think, that was published by Christianity Today, if I remember correctly. What what were those four complaints? Yeah, um, it was one of the Christianity Today magazines called uh, Leadership Directed to Pastors. And they surveyed people, what what do you have against Christians? And these are the four <laughs> things they came up with. You don't listen to me. You judge me. Your faith confuses me. And you talk about what's wrong instead of making it right. And I can understand that. I, I had to examine myself. You know, Do I do that to other people? And it's so easy to do. It's so easy to come across as we've got, we've got something you don't have and we're better off. So you hear words like self-righteous, uh, holier than thou. And actually, when you think about those words, we're not self-righteous. The reason we're Christians is because we realized we didn't have any self-righteousness. Our righteousness comes from God. Right. And the way to get there is to admit that we are sinners and we need that help. And holier than thou, um, Jesus said, that's, that's not the standard. The Pharisees thought they were holier than all these other people. The question is, how are you holy compared to God? Well, we all fail. Right. And so somehow we're communicating the opposite of what Jesus said. We should come across as flawed people, thirsty people who have found a source, who have found something that satisfies, and it changes us, and it's good news, and we'd like you to have that too. That should be the... the image that comes across, I think, for Christians. Yeah, and it's so good. You knew a story about an Army Reserve uh, chaplain. I think his name was Thomas Bruce. Before you share the story, I would just preface it by saying oftentimes our first reaction is our fleshly reaction mm. when we're in a spiritual battle. I mean, I think, boom, we want to we wanna hit back verbally. You know, we want to express what we do know, what is truth. And so often the Lord, at least in my heart, it's always like, okay, slow down. Let's think about this. And this story is one of those kinds of stories where it, it does kind of capture you to say, wait a minute, yeah, should I be doing that? Yeah, it's a story that comes right out of Colorado Springs here where we're talking. I was speaking at my church a couple hours away, and this gentleman I'd never met drove up there. He was a graduate of Wheaton College, so he knew I was speaking. And in the process, I was talking about prayer. I had written a book on prayer. 
And I said, one of the hardest prayers for me to understand is what Jesus said. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I actually, I had a slide of members of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And I said, these are our enemies. They are trying to kill Americans. And what should we do? Well, Jesus said, one thing you can do is pray for them. And I said, I, I've never prayed for a member of Al-Qaeda. Maybe I should be doing that. What if every church in the United States adopted one of these guys, learned to pronounce his name, and started praying for him? From the FBI and uh, yeah. CIA's most wanted list. That's right. right. That's that, crazy. That list, yeah. And, and you're right. That's crazy. That's your first reaction. Yeah. So there, this guy, he was a, a chap, chaplain in the Army. He eventually became a colonel. He drove back, and as he was driving back the two-hour drive to Colorado Springs, he thought, man, I'm in the Army, and I've, I've done tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we're trained to kill our enemies, but I've never thought about praying for them, loving them. So he started a website called Adopt a Terrorist for Prayer. <laughs> yeah, it just sounds so counterintuitive. And, and he ran these pictures of actual terrorists, gave some background of who they'd killed, what they planned to do, and ask you to sign up and just pray for them by name. Well, his commanding officer came across this, and he wasn't amused. He said, mm -hmm. he calls him and, what are you trying to do? We're trying to get these people to, we're trying to get our soldiers to kill these guys, and you've got a website where you're trying to get people to pray for them? Come on now, that's crazy. And it occurred to, to him as he later expressed it to me, it occurred to him that's probably exactly what Jesus' disciples thought when right. Jesus first said, love your enemies. You know, these Roman soldiers who are going around beating them up, crucifying them, whatever. Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for them. And, and Jesus' disciples said, why would, why would anybody do that? And Jesus said, well, because that's the only way that people are going to find out what your Father in heaven is like. Mm. He causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. And unless you can do that, unless you can show the same kind of care and love for your enemies that God has shown toward you, people will never know what God is like. You know, so many things are rooted in that era uh, when we talk about going the extra mile. You know, where's that come from? Well, it yeah. comes from the gospel. That's it's right. where Jesus is saying to his disciples, because of a Roman practice they had then, that the Jews, if you're walking down the dirt road and crossed a Roman, and they could require you to carry their luggage yeah. or their belongings a Roman mile, and Jesus said, when that happens, carry it an extra mile. Right. Again, very counterintuitive to the heart, to the human heart. But again, it piques curiosity. It's yeah. probably what set up such great expansion in the church in the second, third century because they were behaving so abnormally. They were. There's a story, I think her name is Perpetua, who was one of the early martyrs. And most Christians, they were turned loose and they were either gladiators or wild animals sometimes who were devouring the Christians. This is Roman entertainment. I mean, that's the kind of culture it was. They would be cheering in the stands as wild animals would attack these innocent Christians standing there, uh, you know, armed, unarmed, weaponless. And, and this one woman said, well, we need to do it in a different way because usually the Christians would run around screaming, help, 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 and the audience would cheer, hey, that's great, you know. And um, Perpetua got a group of Christians together in prison and said, we're gonna do it differently. We're gonna stand in the middle 
and we're going to pray, and we're going to sing songs and not fight and not flee. And so she did. There, I think there were about 30 of them, and these wild animals are tearing into them, and they're just standing there singing songs and praying. And it was no fun for the audience at all. Right. <laughs> it just exposed what they were. It was a, kind of a dramatic moment in, in the way Christians were treated. Philip, in that regard, when you look at the way we cling to this life as Christians, it kind of communicates the exact opposite of what we want people to trust in. So in other words, if we, if we are fighting for this temporal life in such aggressive ways that we put the Lord's tools aside, because mm. they're not effective in the short yeah. run, yeah. you know, I'm just, you know, giving the intensity. But, but in that regard, it, it does demonstrate that maybe we've lost a bit of the eternal perspective, that our life and our human life in this earth becomes more important than eternal life. Right. Sometimes I ask myself, Jim, why are we here? That's a good question. <laughs> why was the earth invented in the first place, created? Why, uh, what, what did God have in mind with this whole human experiment? Hmm. You know, these ornery little two-legged people who don't often do what they're supposed to do, you know? I say he's a God of a lot of teenagers. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> right. that's a good point. And uh, you, you've probably heard the Westminster Confession. Why are we here? We're here to glorify God and enjoy him for, forever. And that's a good start. That's certainly true. But I, I wonder, but what was in it for God? What did God have in mind? And I go back to the Gospels, and there are three or maybe four times when God actually spoke audibly. So that people, what was that? Was that thunder? No, that was God. What did he say? And he said the same thing every time. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hmm. And that struck me. I think that's why God invented planet Earth to create people who could give him pleasure. And and if we make our decisions based on, are we going to win this election, or are we going to further our career, those kind of things, as you say, they're temporal, they don't last. But if we make our decisions, did I please God today? What would please God about this decision? What is more important, the issue or the way in which I express the issue? Right. And Jesus is so clear. As you said, love is, is paramount, and if it doesn't come through that way, then we're doing something wrong. No, it's so true. I, I have a friend named Bill. I won't give his last name. He gets up out of bed every day, sits on the edge of the bed, and says, Lord, Bill here, reporting for duty. <laughs> what a good. great way to wake up. That's and good. he shows it. He's a very joyful man yeah. in everything he does. Uh, Phil, you have a story about a Christian filmmaker who attended Sundance Film Festival. What happened in that context? Because right. I think these illustrations are really helpful for us. Right. Yeah, he takes a group of... Uh, seminary students from Fuller Seminary, where he teaches classes in filmmaking, to Sundance. And Sundance is primarily, you know, the Hollywood, uh, edgy, uh, independent films, you know, things that you wouldn't even get across. Started by Robert Redford, I think. That's right, yeah. yeah. And so he had a group of about 20 Christians, and they attended this one that was, the film was making fun of the church and how ridiculous it was and how strict and and, uh, just a lot of negatives about the church and people were hooting and hollering yeah yeah you know those are people who had been wounded probably at one point and so they had an audience interaction time and a couple people asked questions and then he stood up and said my name is so-and-so and and i'm from uh, i'm an evangelical christian and i come from fuller seminary and things went really quiet (laughs) and he said 
I just want to apologize for the ways that the church has, has wounded some of you. Um, I don't agree with everything you said in the film, but some of it it's true, and I know it's true, and, and we're wrong, and I'm sorry, and sat down. He said it was just silent. And then afterwards, all these people came up to him and said, I've never heard a Christian apologize. Thank yeah. you so much for that. Let me tell you my story. And they would tell their story. And he's been going ever since. He takes this, that same group every year. So he's gotten to know some of the filmmakers, and it's changed the whole spirit of the kind of the anti-Christian spirit of the of the festival they have a the christians have a place they have a voice there now and right. it's, a, it's an attractive voice not yeah. an offensive y- voice you know philip i had an experience similar to that and i've never shared this publicly and again the names aren't important but i remember reaching out to someone in the lgbtq community to ask him if he wanted to have coffee just to meet and i know that that group and that particular organization saw us as enemies mm-hmm. And that was part of it. I wanted to let him know I'm a human being just like he is, basically. So we met at a coffee place, and it was profound. Um, He brought a bunch of research that he had looked at our website and had Mm. some corrections for us in the way that we use terminology in that space, the LGBTQ space. And, uh, you know, so I thanked him for that. Thanks for doing that homework. I'll take a look at and have the team, you know, make sure that we're in agreement on those things. But I remember saying to him, and I'm sitting here having this wrestling match with the Lord, going, Lord, why did you want me to meet with him? Because I did feel that impression from the Lord to do this, to reach out. And what wafted through my mind and through my heart was, tell him I love him. Hmm. You you can imagine the conversation that immediately starts happening. Like, Hmm. Lord, are you sure? I'm sitting in a public (laughs) coffee place. But I did it. I just said to him, hey, I think the only reason that I wanted to meet today is to let you know something, and that is God loves you. Boom, he started crying Wow! right at the table. And I said, could you tell me why it's touched a nerve? And he said, I just never expected anyone from Focus on the Family to tell a gay man that God loved him. Hmm. And that, you know, that, it, whew, I mean, that is the profound truth. And it's not, you know, no sin keeps us from God. Yeah. God knows us, he loves us, he created us. And I just felt like, wow, um, you know, we don't, we shouldn't supersize sins, right? Sin is sin, according to scripture. And uh, if I look at a woman and have lust in my heart, the Lord said, I have already committed adultery, right? Mm. So let's get rid of that one. (laughs) You know, when you start wanting to edit the book. Well, every, every religion says that God loves good people. That's nothing new. But Jesus came with a different message. God loves bad people. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not one of them. That's radical. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and you look at his parables. You look at the people he hung around. Uh, who's the hero of the parable of the prodigal son? Is it the, the older brother who did everything right? No, he looks pretty bad in Jesus' story. It's the prodigal who did everything wrong. And yet God loved him anyway. God yeah. loves enemies. God loves bad people. And the scene in the temple where there's a Pharisee saying, well, I'm glad I'm not that guy over there. He's a sinner. And the sinner only has one prayer, God help me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, which prayer is God listening to? And it's pretty clear what the answer is, mm. the one who admits the need. And grace is is absolutely free. You can't do anything to earn it, to deserve it. There's no 10 steps I can give to you to make God love you. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. God already loves you. And grace is free, but it's a gift. And to receive a gift, you have to have open hands. 
if your hands are closed tight in a fist, which some religious people do, I'm better than 99% of the people in this country, then you miss the gift of grace. Yeah. It falls to the ground. Philip, I've said this on the broadcast a few times, referring to a, a broadcast that we aired a while back with the Pepin family. And I want your reaction to this, knowing how you write. But this girl who was 23 when we recorded the program, she was pregnant at 17. Hmm. She comes down from her bedroom on a Saturday morning, pours the cereal, sits at the table with her sister and mom and dad at the table, and just blurts out, I'm pregnant. Hmm. The sister says, we're pepping girls. We don't do that. <laughs> the dad, in his anger, just kept backing out of the room. Who did this to you? Who did this to you? And the mom just burst into tears. But while we were doing the recording here, and she was telling the story, Lindsay, the daughter, she said, what I became was a sticker Christian. I got a sticker for cleaning my room. I got a sticker for doing my devotions. I got a sticker for my behavior. But what I didn't learn from my mom and dad was God's grace. Mm. And the mom was sitting there, and she just burst into tears. And I asked her, she said, I just assumed she knew what that meant. Mm. I mean, but isn't that a beautiful expression of being a sticker Christian. A sticker Christian. And that's yeah. not what we want to be in ourselves or in our kids. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and as you're telling that story, I, I think of so many people that I know who've been in the recovery movement, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and some of those 12-step groups. Some of them are Christian-based. And I admire them because the first thing they say is, I have blown it. You know, I have right. really messed up my life. And and they confess it, and she confessed it too, you know. And and God knows how to deal with that. God knows how to deal with confession, with repentance. It's indifference that uh, blocks our approach to God. If we could just be honest, and frankly, a lot of churches don't encourage that kind of honesty. Yeah. People go and they want to look good. How are we today? Oh, just fine. Actually. They're not fine. There are all right. sorts of problems going on, and but they wouldn't think of exposing them to others in church because they want to look good. Right. And y when you're reading, especially the Gospels, Jesus's interaction with people, what's really profound, if you uh, try to take in the aroma of what he's encountering, he seems to like to hang out with sinners. Yeah, Matthew, the tax collector, the woman at the well that we talked about, the woman caught in adultery. Mm. I mean, it, it seems like those are people that knew what truth is better than the religious leaders at the time. They knew what they were, right. that they didn't measure up. Right. And when he pointed it out, boom, their hearts went toward him, as opposed to the religious people who mm -hmm. thought they had it all together and in, ended up hating him to the point of rallying to crucify mm -hmm. him. I remember when I was writing the book, The Jesus I Never Knew, I was puzzled by why Jesus was so upset at the Pharisees. Because as I was doing research, it seemed like they were closest to what he believed and how he behaved as anybody on, on earth. You know, they, they worked to follow every one of the laws in the Old Testament. They were Bible-believing. They were teaching, you know, and yet in, in chapters like uh, Matthew 23, Luke 11, Jesus is really pretty tough on the Pharisees. Oh, They're yeah. a bunch of whitewashed tombs, you know. And the more I read about it, the more I decided the problem with Pharisees is that they hung around other Pharisees all day. <laughs> and they started competing, and Jesus was scornful. Here you you tithe your kitchen spices, your salt and pepper, your cumin, your 
oregano or whatever, you make sure the church gets 10%. But there are these huge issues of injustice going on around you, um, and you don't care about those things. Yeah. And if you're around people who are just like you, it really distorts your vision. And that's why it's so important, as Jesus told us, to go out and serve people who are unlike us. If you hang out in a homeless shelter, if you hang out in a prison, you're going to be tested. Yeah. Your faith is going to be tested, and you're going to you're going to understand. It's easy to categorize these people, to dismiss them, to think of them as kind of a sociological group. When you get to know them as human beings, then you can feel the compassion that eventually attracted people to Jesus in his day and should attract people to us. Absolutely. You know, you're just reading the New Testament several times, obviously, and you start looking for the core themes. And there's so many, so many wonderful things in the New Testament. Um, Old Testament, too, but, you know, Jesus arrives, and we kind of tilt into that New Testament teaching that he gives us. But two things seem like, you know, billboards for me. One is salvation through Christ and Christ alone, and don't become a Pharisee. Those are kind of the two billboards of the New Testament. Yeah. And it sends a message, you know, that don't think more highly of yourself than you should. That kind of reminds me of a, of a little anecdote that I put in this book, Vanishing Grace, and somebody had surveyed the three phrases people most want to hear. Hmm. Uh, the first one is, I love you. The second one is, I, I'm sorry. And the third one is, supper's ready. <laughs> <laughs> and this preacher said, actually, that's a good summary of the gospel. You know, <laughs> In what way? Well, that God loves us, that he accepts our apology, our repentance, and there's a feast awaiting for us. You know, pain often um, draws us toward God. Mm-hmm. It, it seems, again, counterintuitive. Why would the Lord use suffering? But certainly Paul and others talked about that, what what suffering produces, mm-hmm. hope, faith, etc. And, you know, for me, it's been my life's experience as a little boy who went through a lot of trauma, orphaned at a young age into foster care. Um, someone will ask me occasionally, you know, if you had to go through all that again and be where you're at with the Lord, would you do it again? Absolutely. Yeah. So in that context, address that because you've written a lot about it, suffering leading to deeper relationship with God. Does it have to be that way, Philip? (laughs) Good question. (laughs) I think of a phrase from C.S. Lewis, and I'm always very hesitant to ever disagree with anything C.S. Lewis says. (laughs) But he used a phrase called, Pain the megaphone of God. Mm. He said, God whispers to us in our good times, but he shouts to us in our bad times. And I understand what he's saying, but I would phrase it a little differently. Because when I hear that megaphone of God, I think of a football coach on the sideline yelling at people, do 50 push-ups, go run five miles. You know? <laughs> I had that coach. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and I, I don't see God up there saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to teach Jim a lesson. I'm going to make them suffer, and then they'll turn to me. I, I just don't see that. I could, we could talk about why, but I would just change that phrase a little bit and say that pain is is the hearing aid. Actually, it's something we can control. We can either turn away from God. Well, if it's God like that, I'll never trust him, that kind of God again. Or we can turn up the volume and listen. What could I learn from this experience, which is what you did. 
Well, I hope you were leaning into my conversation with Philip Yancey here on Refocus. I love his emphasis on the gospel message. God loves you. He is for you. He wants to forgive you of your sins, and he wants to have fellowship with you and to give you comfort in times of suffering. Uh, Some really powerful thoughts from Philip Yancey, and I'm glad you listened in. I can remember a previous administration. I won't name names here, but it wasn't uh, an administration that would agree with Christian principles generally, um, especially conservative Christian principles. But I remember engaging one of the chief staff members of that administration, and she was very pleasant to be with. We probably had a meal oh, eight to 12 times, and we got to know each other. We didn't agree with each other on all these different definitions of the family and religious liberties and things like that. But it was good to get to know her. She had suffered some extreme uh, racial discrimination, and just to hear her story was quite compelling. And I would say we became friends, even though we didn't agree, and that can be done. And it's just one example of how uh, I want to use this podcast to equip you and to build you up in your faith and help you engage with people wherever you cross paths. Uh, That will be people that don't always agree with you. Scripture is full of instances where Jesus or his followers encountered others and stopped to talk with them or helped to meet a need in their lives. We need, as Christians, to be ready for those times when God gives us the opportunity to share the hope that's within us. And that's exactly what Scripture says. Be ready. I also want to encourage you to get Philip Yancey's wonderful book, Vanishing Grace, Whatever Happened to the Good News. In it, he acknowledges that Christians don't always have to get it right. We sometimes stumble and mess up God's bigger plan because we're human. He helps to guide us toward responding to the culture with grace and truth. And with a gift of any amount to refocus, I'll send you a copy of Philip's book. And then see the show notes for other resources to help you share the gospel more effectively. Now for the inbox segment, uh, here's a voicemail from Heather. Hi, my name is Heather, and I am curious about your belief on connecting with God. There are a lot of um, religions, and I think there are many paths to God. Why do you say Jesus is the only way? You know, Heather, I kind of had that feeling as a late teenager and early 20-something. Then I had a chance to study in Japan my last year of college. It was an amazing experience, but seeing Buddhism and Shintoism kind of at work and living with a Japanese family that practiced that really reinforced my hunger and my thirst for the Christian message. And here's what I would conclude. Uh, There are major religions in the world with a billion people following this one or that one. I would say the difference between Christianity and all other religions is that Christianity is the description and the book of how God reached down to humanity and made a way back to him through salvation in Christ. Every other religion is about works building up toward salvation, that you can earn it if you behave a certain way. If you really look at your own soul, you know that's difficult, impossible, I would say, to live a perfect life. And I think that is the best evidence for the credence of Christianity, that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whomever shall believe upon him will have eternal life. Who else? What other religion 
makes that kind of gift available. And it's just like the heart of God to do it that way. So I would encourage you, do the research. Look at other religions. I think you'll find Christianity as the most benevolent and the most godlike of all the religions. And again, thanks, Heather, for that question. I want to invite you to get to know Jesus today. Man, that's at the foundational level of doing refocus. I found him when I was 15, and I should say I recognized that he had found me. And he filled that hole in my heart as an orphan kid and changed my life. And we have a free booklet you can download called Coming Home. It's a wonderful resource to share with your friends or loved ones. And it describes very simply what it means to trust in Christ. And you'll find the link in the episode notes. Now, if you have a question for me, uh, please send me a voicemail by clicking on the link in the episode notes. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening to Refocus with Jim Daly. You can help us reach more people by telling your friends. Also, like, listen, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Refocus, I'll speak with Katie Faust, president of Them Before Us. She was raised by a mom who identified as a lesbian, and she makes the case for a child's right to both a mom and a dad as she helps us frame that God-ordained idea for the culture with grace. We talk about the importance of mothers and fathers and working through issues and doing hard things on behalf of children. You can say it, but you also have to show it. We need more examples for people to behold so that they know what they can and should become. Like you don't become that by accident. You have to behold that. You might be the family that somebody needs to behold. That's coming up on the next Refocus with Jim Daly. Are you a pastor? Then you know ministry is full of challenges. But those challenges sometimes come from lies that you believe about your role and expectations of you. As a pastor, you and your spouse need to be refreshed and encouraged. And that's why Focus on the Family presents the Focused Pastor Couples Conference. Join us as we hear from Paul David Tripp, Dr. Greg Smalley, Ted Cunningham, and more. Mark your calendar to join us on October 28th through 30th right here at Focus on the Family in Colorado Springs. Visit thefocusedpastor.com slash refresh for more details.